it's ever critical when we come to the house of the Lord. It's critical that we come waiting on him. I know and I, I speak for myself as much as anybody else. I speak for myself more than anybody else, really. I, I know it's easy to come into the house of the Lord and to just expect certain things, especially maybe certain routines. Okay, we're going to do this first and then this. And But even when we enter into prayer at the outset of a service, we should enter in waiting on Him. When we begin to worship the Lord today, we should enter into lifting our voice in song and our hands. We, we do that waiting on Him, waiting on Him, feeling after Him, letting Him lead us throughout every part and aspect and facet. And as we as the body of Christ come with that mindset, we come with that heartbeat of waiting on him. Lord, I'm, I'm getting up on a Sunday morning. I'm going to the house of God. And I'm going to wait on you. I'm going into the prayer room. I'm waiting on you. And I enter into that service waiting on you, your leading, your instruction, your direction. Then he begins to minister and flow through us how he chooses. Now, if I come and I go, well, you know, I'm prayer room I'll let somebody else do that I'm just here for the word this morning you may miss what he's doing because he flows from beginning to end I want to enter into that don't you thank you for your worship today it's precious I feel the richness of his spirit in a great way and he's not done aren't you thankful praise God I'm asking Elder Flowers to come take his liberty this morning praise Lord everyone I will uh, echo what Elder Hart said and say how good it is to have my mom here with us today. Now that she has had uh, 30 seconds of no kids climbing on her and had a chance to reflect, I'm going to ask her to stand and just greet you really quickly.
Amen. Praise God. Amen. Right where you're seated, look at Matthew chapter 17. There's this curious passage here that I just want to point out before we go further. And since it's already been mentioned twice now, I drove by the old Wapato building last week. Some of you probably have seen it recently as well. But thankfully, um, the Lord did great things in that place while we lived there, while we worshiped there, while we gathered there. And just like Elder Hart said, there, there, was, a t- there was a period of time when that was unquestionably the will of God for this body. And then there was a time unquestionably when the will of God was for us to no longer meet at that location. And as I was just driving by it one day last week, I thought, man, this place still looks the same. Obviously, there's weeds. Obviously, there's grass. Obviously, there's <laughs> obviously there's graffiti on the back of the building that looks a lot like it used to. But the body is ever-changing. This place is not the same. The Lord has done so much in the, just in the few years that it's been. And thankfully, he's, he's still working. He's still leading. And only he knows what he has further to come still. Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man kneeling down to him, saying... Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and sore vexed, for oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation. Man, he he looks at this dad, and he lets this dad have it. This dad is just caring about his son and the, and the problem that his son has. And he points out the disciples, they couldn't fix what needed to be fixed. And he says, oh, faithless and perverse generation. Now, I don't doubt that he was turning probably to more than just that one father and addressing the, the group because it says they came to the multitude. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? How long shall I suffer you? One more time. How long shall I suffer you? This is, we're going to get into this, and you're going to figure out why this is, is blinking in my head right now. But how long shall I suffer you? Bring him here. And he does his thing. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, Why could not we cast him out? And Jesus said unto them very simply, Because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, If you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, He's actually telling them, you don't, at, at that moment you did not even have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, or else you would have been able to cast him out. Ye shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. How be it, verse 21, 
It's highlighted in my text here. Howbeit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. Now think about that, because where in that short passage did we read about the time that Jesus paused everything and went to pray and fast? He didn't. He tells his disciples, you couldn't cure or cast out this devil because of your unbelief. And this kind doesn't go out, but without prayer and fasting. So really what he's telling them is, my sweet dear brethren, you have not been praying and fasting. This kind doesn't go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, he didn't say you, the, the need was presented to you, so you should have immediately stopped eating, decided to not eat by entering into a time of fasting until you got that devil out. That's, that's not the approach he's saying. He's saying you weren't in a condition of prayer and fasting. Your spirit wasn't entering into that place of prayer and fasting. Because we, we, we know, right, the, the only problem, we only see problems when we fast. We only see problems while we're praying, right? No, we have problems every day. So we have to be in the condition of being prayed up, if I can put it that way, and being fasted up to do the kind of work that he's saying. This kind, this kind of work can only be done by a person who is in the condition of being prayed up and fasted up. Amen. I, anybody like history here? Anybody like, not just, not just enjoy history, but you really enjoy history and you like to learn about everything that's happened ever about anything. A couple of us. A few weeks ago when, when my wife addressed us on Mother's Day, she mentioned that we have been uh, delving into history more recently um, probably than, than we ever have. And through that, the Lord can teach. Because we were driving to church one day. I, I might have even mentioned this before, but we were driving to church one day and listening to this historical timeline and I, I paused it. Man, I felt the Holy Ghost just come into the van. It was just me and a couple of the kids. And I said, let me tell you why this song is important. Let me tell you why knowing history is important. I said one word, truth. Truth. There's truth in biblical history. There's truth in biblical study and knowing from creation to 2018, what's happened? How did we get here? What all has happened? Who were the players? Who, who were the people? What did they experience? What did they see? What did they do that led to what, this condition that we're in right now today? How did we get here? And so through this, obviously the whole Old Testament, I don't have time to, to go through it all, but as I was thinking and praying on these things the Lord began to show me a pattern of his people. This pattern is sin and forgiveness. And sin and forgiveness. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve. There was sin, right? 
There was just one simple commandment. Do everything you want, but don't do this one thing. That one simple commandment was not upheld because we know there was sin. Jesus told him, in the day that you eat of this, the Lord said, you shall surely die. So there's the sin there, right? Then fast forward a few generations up to Noah. And, and God says, there's so much sin here. There's so much sin. It says it repented the Lord that he made man. And then we know that Noah found grace in the eyes of God. That is an example of God's forgiveness. Because he could have just said, everybody, including Noah and his eight. He could have. He's God. He could have chosen to do that. But he for, it was an act of forgiveness and grace and mercy that he would choose to save Noah and his family and still preserve our right to be here today and what we're doing here today. Follow down through more generations and we get to Abraham. And it, with Abraham, he takes it a step further and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you because I because your great grandfather, great grandfather's all the way up to Adam and all the way back down to you. You got this pattern going on. Let me try to help you with this pattern. If you can do this, I will do this. That's the covenant that he made with Abraham. I will make you a great nation. Now, the Lord is all-knowing, and he knew that just as human as Adam and Eve were, and those that were in the time frame of Noah, and those that lived after him up through Abraham, and those that were in Abraham's day, and those that follow, they're all human. They're all flesh. But he was, he was taking this a step further by making that covenant. And we, we, if you follow then through those descendants and, and those uh, uh, generations to pass, we, we find that the children of Israel are led into captivity in Egypt. If you've been around church long enough, you've probably heard Egypt referred to as a type of sin. So even past this covenant time with Abraham, there's still not only some sin, the children of God held captive by sin because sin has that, had that much prevalence over them. They, were, they, they, they didn't just get there because mean God said, I want you to, to learn what it's like to be captive for a few hundred years. No, it was their choices. It was their life. It was their sin and turning away from God that led them to Egypt to be held captive. Then we know the story of Moses and how Moses is brought to lead them out of captivity. That's another type or shadow of the leader leading the people of God out of sin. I will deliver you. I will deliver you. I'll take you out of what you're in. They were, they were able to return to the promised land and set up shop. In the promised land. This covenant of, that, that God made with Abraham is still the covenant that God's trying to hold his people to. 
And he's trying. He, we know that he's raising up. Remember Israel. If you, if you take the, the life of Abraham and then his sons and go all the way down, you get to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is Israel, who becomes the great nation. So God's upholding his part of the promise here by making Abraham a great nation. But is the great nation upholding its part of the promise? Unfortunately, we know that that's not the case. Even when he pulls the, his people out of Egypt, out of sin, and puts them in their promised land, just follow the bouncing ball through time, through history. And now they're in the promised land. And then there was no more sin, right? No. It continued. There's this, they continue to break that covenant. They, then we enter this time period of judges. Think about that word for just a second. Judges over God's people. It's kind of like God's playing this chess match and, okay, I'm going to move this piece then. If, you're, if you keep doing this and going that way and doing these and this, I'm going to put some judges here. I don't think any of us would volunteer to take a judge of the law, even in our current day, home with us and let him just kind of observe everything we do for a week. I don't want to judge over me. And, I mean, I don't even want him riding in the car with me from Sunnyside down to Selah. Uh, I've said this before, but you're, no better, you're, you're never a better driver than when you see a cop in the rearview mirror. Even if his lights aren't on, now it's, ooh, what, where are my hands? Where's my speed? What, where's the needle? Where are the mirrors? Did I check them? Am I going to run out of gas? What, what's going to happen? No, you're, because you're, all of a sudden you're under scrutiny. You know you're being observed. That's where the children of Israel found themselves with the judges on the scene, telling them, you know what God says about this. You know what God says about this. You know the law that you've been given. I'm just the judge to tell you what God says. Then the people of God, no wonder they said, give us a king. We want to move out of this period of judges. Give us a king. Other nations don't have judges. Other nations don't have the man of God ruling over their life and saying, Here's what God says about that. Here's what God thinks about this. No, just give us a king because the king just, he, he, he's stationary. He stays in his palace. He's got his own property. He lives there, and he doesn't really know what's going on in my hut. So give us the king. And then through history, we find Saul, the first king over Israel. So they get the king and there's no more sin, right? No, we see there's the pattern. Saul himself, being risen up into power, starts off great. But then we know how things end when David comes on the scene. Saul is not the great, mighty, just king any longer. And he, he, the Lord says, I've taken away the kingdom from you. Because of sin. And so we find David. David was a man without sin, right? 
No. But he's put into this position, this king. And we know that the child he has, Solomon, another king. This Solomon, oh, man, Solomon's a great example because he gets to come into the kingdom at a young age. He gets to observe his dad who, yes, he had flaws, but he, he, he was still doing things right. He was trying to live on the straight and narrow. And this Solomon had a good foundation to, to start from. He's just put in the kingdom. It's a righteous time. The, key, the children of Israel are, are actually serving God. The children of Israel are actually seeking the Lord. He gets to build God's temple. He gets to see the presence of God, and the priests are actually doing their thing, and everybody's happy, everybody's worshiping. But then Solomon, get him a little older, put a few years on him, put him into the pattern of life, and we see that even Solomon falls into sin. Okay? Now, this is where the history part came in for me, because during this reign and after Solomon's reign was when we see the nation of Israel divide. And now not just one, we have two nations of Israel. One goes by the name of Israel, one goes by the name of Judah. I'm going somewhere with this, okay? Now the nation's divided into two, Israel and Judah. And because of that, and because they're turned to each other and fighting each other, it's a civil war between these two nations. I don't like him. I know he's my kindred, but I don't like him, and I'm choosing over here. And they both have these ways of fighting at each other. And what do you think happens to two kingdoms when they're fighting? They both collapse. They both collapse. They're no longer Israel. They're no longer Israel and Judah. They become captive again. We've already heard that word once, haven't we? They become captive again. These other nations, they're just sitting back and observing. And wait a second, God's people aren't acting like God's people. They're acting kind of a lot like my people and your people. I think we can take them. So these other kingdoms rush in and, and, and they tear down the temple and they send all the Jews into captivity and and the jews actually become scattered they don't just say okay all of this group we're going to send you all to this jail property prison whatever it is we're, we're, no some go here some go there the nations that that divide that kingdom and, and take over that kingdom each have their own hostages if you will they each have their own slaves, their own people that they can govern over. So now the, the people of God are scattered. Everybody say scattered. There's Jews everywhere. This was interesting to me. They, they weren't called Jews, even in the timeline of history. They were called Israelites. But somewhere along the way, they stopped being called Israelites. We don't call them Israelites today. Even though, even though there is a nation of Israel... We don't, we don't look at that original group and trace the descendants back and call them all Israelites. And this, this is why, because during that time, there was no Israel. It was, it was like I said, it was, it was taken over. It, it fell. They were scattered. 
And it got to the point where this, it doesn't mean anything for your, your child to raise up and say, you're an Israelite. What's an Israelite? Well, it's, it's where we used to live, and there, there's nothing there anymore, but you were, and so you are. Nope, they just started referring to them as the Jews, okay? I mean, look at the New Testament. You see that word, the Jews and the Gentiles. That's who, that's who they're referring to, okay? Still with me? Okay, so we go from Solomon and, and the temple and, and, and the, the kingdoms divided and the captive and the scattered. And then we get prophets on the scene. Okay, it's kind of like another chess piece. God's moving. Okay, the judges, they tried to serve their, their time. The kings, they tried to serve their time. Now I'm going to send prophets. The judges were, were one thing. It was bad enough to just tell you a constant reminder of the law, a constant reminder of here's what you're doing wrong because here's what's supposed to be done right. No, the prophets come along, and the prophets are going to say, it's not always going to be like this. You're, this pattern is not going to continue. Just like Jesus, the man said, how long shall I suffer you? How long can I Put up with this. This is, the, this is the mind of God saying, man, I tried here. I tried here. I tried here. This is just what the people are doing. These prophets are giving the people this word. Trying to restore. Trying to bring the nation back. Trying to bring the word of God to the people. Now, I want to look at the words of one prophet, Jeremiah. We're going to read here, Jeremiah chapter 31. I said all that to give you the, the background of what Jeremiah is talking about when we read here. We're in this day and age where the prophets have to speak and broadcast the word of God to the Israelites who are scattered. I really don't know how God accomplished that, but somehow he accomplished getting his word to the group that, that's exiled over here and the group that's exiled over here and the group that's over here through the prophets. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 31 and look at verse 31. Remember what he started with Abraham was this covenant, the promise, I will make you a great nation. You will, I will be your God. You will be my children. Jer Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make, everybody say it, a new covenant with who? The house of Israel. And with the house of who? Judah. Just in case those from Judah thought, well, this is only for them. Because they divided, remember? But no, he's addressing both Israel and Judah. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, I'm going to make a new covenant. The same is going to go for both of you. Because you're still my people even if you can't get along. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so he's referencing back to the covenant that their fathers were under. This is the prophet, okay, don't get lost. This is the prophet writing about what's to come because he's seen this pattern, he's seen this movie he knows how it ends. I can't just let it keep going on like this. We're running out of videotape. 
I can't keep going on like this. That something's going to change in the process of time. And history is not just going to keep repeating itself. So the prophet Jeremiah is writing these things to the house of Israel about this new covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Which my covenant they break. They keep breaking that covenant. I took them by the hand. I led them out of Egypt according to my covenant, but they keep breaking it. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. Verse 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Get ready. Don't miss this. This is the new covenant. What's going to be established from that point going forward. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Stop there for a second because there's not a whole lot different if you just look at this initial wording because he told Abraham, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, I'm going to make you a great nation. I gave you the law the only thing he's changing is where the law is written. The only difference. <laughs> he's gone through these thousands of years and these generations and the wars and the sin and the forgiveness and the sin and the forgiveness and the exiled and coming back and then the exiled again and then the coming back. No, we're going to stop it. I got an idea. I'm going to write the law on your heart. We'll see how that goes. That's, that's what he says. I'm going to write the law on your heart. They shall be my people. Verse 34. And they shall teach no more. Watch this. They shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, this is what they're not going to teach anymore. Know the Lord. They're going to stop going around to everybody and saying, know the Lord. Brother, know the Lord. Sister, know the Lord. For they shall know me. I don't go up to you and say, do you know the Lord? No. They shall know me. They will know me. They already will know me. From the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. How? How are they already going to know me? How are they? What's, what's changing here? Because we used to just go up to our brothers and our sisters and say, know the Lord. We used to just go up to them and quote uh, uh, Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hear, O Israel, do you know the Lord? What's changing? They will know me, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will forgive. Their iniquity, that's how they will know me. And I will remember their sin no more. I will remember their sin. No, that's, that is a catalyst in history right there. We were, go, we were doing things this way. Now we're going to start doing things this way. Now this is, this is just Jeremiah writing to a bunch of scattered, exiled Jews. Somewhere, Jeremiah's, I think it was 52 chapters 
at least 50 chapters. This is kind of right in the middle of it. So how easy could that word get lost? I mean, if you're not listening, if you're not paying attention. Because the prophet had a whole lot to say. But he puts that in there. That word travels, starts to travel from those generations down, down, down. We used to do things like that. I don't know how much longer we're going to do things like that, but eventually things are going to change and we're going to start doing them like this. Now let's pick up with the history for just a second. Don't leave that because that's a key. But at this time, they're scattered. The Persian Empire and King Cyrus gets to come in and say, everybody, I'm fine if you just want to go back to Israel. Everybody that's in this... And, and then the, the, those from the other nations, they start, and all of a sudden they get their free pass to go home and, and rebuild. They get a chance to just go and start over. Sounds like, like what we talked about Wednesday night, doesn't it? They get a chance to go home, start over. Now, I want to look at a passage here when this happens. Ezra, chapter 3. I'm making you find those hard-to-find books of the Bible if you've got one. Ezra chapter 3, we are still going through history, we're still going through prophets, we're still going to put the, the new covenant into place, but how, when, where, through whom? Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, and when the seventh month was come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. So they're back. Everybody say they're back. They're back in Jerusalem. Verse 2, then stood up Joshua, the son of that guy, and his brethren, and the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of that guy, and his brethren, and builded. Everybody say builded. Everybody say built. They, they built the altar of of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Verse 3, and they set the altar upon his bases, and fear was upon them because of the people of those countries. And they offered burnt offerings. This, this generation that's doing this, most of them, this is their first time to ever actually see what Moses told them to do get done. Think about that. These are first-generation Israelites, so to speak. They get to go back to Israel. These are people, Daniel, those three Hebrew boys, those, that happened in the, in the time between this. So now this group gets to go back and really try to start over. Now they're doing everything according to the law of Moses, because even though Jeremiah says something's going to change and you're not going to do what you were, that hasn't happened yet, so we're just doing what we know how to do it, and we're going to build this altar because we have plans from Moses on how to do this. And they offered burnt offerings thereon unto the Lord, and even burnt offerings morning and evening. Verse 4, they kept also the feast of the tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number. Some people had to be so thrilled about that. We are getting to do what the Bible says. 
We get to build the altar. We get to give the sacrifices. And I'm not, I'm being sarcastic, but I'm not trying to make light of it because they finally get to do what Moses said. Keep the feasts. We get to eat these feasts that we've heard so much about according to the custom as the duty of every man, of every day required. Verse 5, and afterward offered the, I almost said continental, the continental breakfast time. Okay. And afterward, they offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and all of the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated. And every man that was willing offered a free will offering to the Lord. Verse 5, from the first day of the seventh month began they to, the burnt offerings unto the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. They're trying to... They're trying to follow what the word of God says. They're trying to follow what the law of Moses says. We're new to this, okay? We're, uh, I was in Babylon. They would never let us do anything like this in Babylon. This is my first altar to build. This is my, <laughs> this is my first offering. This is my first, try, first time to try to kill like, like my, my great-grandparents did. They were good at it. They could, they could just, man, tie that thing down. Stab it, no problem. Mm, not me. I struggle with this. This that's that's what we're, what's happening here. People are trying to do this for the first time, trying to re-enter into that old covenant. But the foundation of the Lord was not yet. The temple was not yet laid. Verse seven. They gave money also to the masons and to the carpenters and the meat and meat and drink and oil unto them of Zidon. And to them of Tyre to bring cedar trees from Lebanon. We've got to build this foundation. According to the grant that they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Verse 8. Now in the second year of their coming under the house of God. Okay. First year's done. We got that far. We got the altar built. We got some, some sacrifices going. Some offerings. People are giving their free will offering. And now we're going to try to start building this foundation. Next verse. Then stood Joshua with his sons and his brethren, Cadmiel and his sons of Judah. Brother Zario, we talked about this. Some of the Bible is hard to read. I skipped the first two chapters of Ezra on purpose because it just, le- it just names the people that came here. So-and-so begot so-and-so, and he had 125 families. So-and-so, and, got, and, and, and that, it's just the roll call. Okay, but this is significant. What's happening here, what they're getting to do here is significant. These families to set forward the workmen in the house of God, the sons of Hinnadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. Verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets. Oh, grand, granddad was, was a Levite. He, he actually got to do this. He got to wear the, this robe and, and go into this temple and do this this way. This is almost like a dress rehearsal, what we're reading about here, because they finally got it rebuilt. They're putting the robes back on. The, the, the next generation, they're trying to go through these things. The Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, the king of Israel. Verse 11, 
and they sang together by course and praising. They had a church service. Really, they, they, they had a church service. They got the priest. They put the foundation out. They got the robes for the priest to wear. They got the symbols for the drummer to, to bang on. And, and, and they're trying to recreate what was, what was once done. Giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good. For his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. We just heard all about that. His mercy endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. They wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy. That's two different. That's, the others are the ones shouting aloud. The ancient men, these older men that remember what it was like before, were the ones weeping with a loud voice. Verse 13, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. I read, that, I read that on purpose. I want, I want you to get the idea and the picture of what's happening in the time frame and the timeline of all this. Because Jeremiah said, it's not always going to be like this. But they get back there and they try to make it just like it was before. Rebuild, put the altar there, put the, put the foundation there, put the... Robes on, get the symbols, sing the songs, because this is what we do, because we're Israelites. Isaiah chapter 53. They're just doing what they do because they're Israelites. Isaiah chapter 53, we're going to read another prophet here. We'll look at verse 4. Now this is the prophet Isaiah, again, speaking in this time frame. During, this is during the exile again. This is during the trying to bring the word of God to the people. This is what he says. What he says is actually going right along with what Jeremiah said. Because Jeremiah says, I will forgive their sins. They will know me because I will remember their sins no more. And then Isaiah writes this. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was wounded. For our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. This is how what we read in Jeremiah 31 is going to take place. How are we going to get to this point where my sins are no longer remembered? How are we going to get to this point where my transgressions, my iniquities are gone? He was wounded for our transgressions. 
He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. One more passage, Matthew chapter 1. Verse 20. We follow what happened with Ezra and the Jews returning and, and, and rebuilding and going back through the protocol according to the law of Moses. We follow that further down the generations until we get to a girl named Mary, a guy named Joseph. When they're, when they're born, things are just like it was when we, where we just picked up reading. Okay? Now, where we're reading now, the angels already appeared to Mary and already told her what's going to happen. Now he's appearing to Joseph. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take, her, to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Ghost. Verse 21. And he shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This pattern, sin, forgiveness, sin, forgiveness. Kings, judges, kings, prophets, wars. This pattern has to stop. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what the, this is what the Lord is saying at this point in time, this pattern has to stop. Your human nature keeps taking over. You're trying to do what I say. You're trying to, to fulfill my law, my commandments. You're trying to fulfill that, but your human nature keeps taking over, and you keep sinning. You keep breaking the law, breaking the covenant. So this new covenant I'm going to bring, I'm going to introduce, is going to help with that. How's it going to help with that? Because this person, this individual, what's going to happen here, what Isaiah talked about, he, who's he? He is the one that David, that, that the angel just told Joseph about. He shall save his people. From their sins. Go back to Isaiah chapter 53. I'm going to read just a little bit more here. This is the picture of who this Jesus is. How he's going to save them from their sins. Let's, let's look at verse 6. Isaiah 53 and 6. All we like sheep. All we Israelites like sheep have gone astray. 
We have turned everyone to his own way. That's what that looks like, that whole pattern of history. That's what it looks like. Everyone turning to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, this is he, the one that the other verses were talking about. He hath borne our transgressions. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. One more verse. He was oppressed. It's confusing because it's written in past tense. And it's, it was written before this happened. But So Isaiah is the prophet, and he's talking about what Isaiah has, what Isaiah has seen from the Lord that did happen in the future that he's writing about to his people now. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. Verse 8. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression transgression of my people was he stricken. I'm going to let you stand with me. We are partakers of the new covenant. I'll say it again. We are partakers of the new covenant. What Jeremiah wrote about would happen, happened. After this baby, Jesus, was born with the intention of saving people from their sins. If you've gone through Bible studies, I know you've seen it. I know you're you're familiar with the terms, the old covenant, the new covenant. This is when it happened. That this is how it happened. This that is why it happened to save me and you from our sins. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you, God, for taking away the sin of the world. I thank you for being despised. I thank you for being rejected for my sake, Jesus. I thank you, God, for preparing this way, this covenant, God, that I could be a partaker of it. I thank you, God, for calling me into your body, for grafting me into your body, God, and all that you've gone through for me. Thank you for taking on the weight of the sin. Thank you for taking on the weight of my transgression, Jesus. Lord, I thank you, God, that you would come and that you would put yourself in flesh, God, that you would put your son, your only begotten son, in flesh to take my place, God, to take away my sin. I thank you for it. Jesus, I thank you for it. I'm going to open this altar right now. I think it would be good if we just... Come before the Lord, and let's just talk to the Lord. Let's just thank him for the ways that he's made, for the opening doors that he's done. Jesus, I know you see each one of us. God, I know that you care about each one of us. God, this is the work that you've done for me. This is the way that you've made for me. Jesus, I thank you, God, for dying on the cross. God, I thank you, Jesus, for bearing my transgression and my sin. Jesus, you take away the iniquity of the world. Jesus, you take away the sin of the world. 
God, I, I admit, I acknowledge right now, God, that in my flesh there's no good thing. In my flesh there is sin, God. Jesus, Lord, your word says we were shaped in iniquity, God. Our human flesh cannot please you. Jesus, our human flesh cannot uphold your law, but I thank you for making the way that we can, Jesus, by you dying on the cross. Jesus, by you putting your spirit inside of us through the grace that you've given, God, through the mercy that you've extended.
you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm thankful for the long-suffering of God. Amen. Brother Gabriel, would you put um, 1 Peter 3 and 18 on the script? says, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. That's him for us. Why did he do that? So that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, verse 19. By which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. And watch this example that he uses. Which sometime were disobedience when once. Brother Flowers talked about Noah. When once the long suffering of God waited. In the days of Noah. Why did God wait? He waited so a way of salvation could be made. His reason for waiting 120 years wasn't because man was maybe turning the corner. Man wasn't. The reason he waited 120 years was so that there could be a way of salvation made for man. This was something near and dear to Peter's heart. And the Lord did that for eight souls. He waited 120 years for eight souls. That's how long-suffering he is. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3, I believe it is, verse 19. 2 Peter 3 and 19. But grow in grace. Can you go back to 17? I'm sorry. Therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace. This is how we do it. Grace. Grow in grace the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Verse 19. Is that it? Maybe I want to go backwards instead of forward. What's verse 15 say? Maybe it's verse 15. That's the line. An account. You can read the verses before this to see what he's talking about. An account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Understand the Lord's not suffering long until we get it right. We're never going to get it right. You understand? That's what he was saying. And, you know, we, we can hear about when the Lord says, how long must I suffer? Like he's just going to keep waiting till we get it right. He's not waiting till we get it right. 
That's what Brother Flowers pointed out. No matter how long he, and how many different methods he sent, man still got it wrong. And just in case you were wondering, we're going to keep getting it wrong on our own. That's why he came and robed himself in flesh. Because he knew you and I enough to know we're going to keep getting it wrong. And so his long suffering with you and I is not till we get it right. His long suffering with you and I is until he can bring us to himself. And thereby save us from ourselves unto him. Just as in Noah... The long-suffering was just to get them in the ark. Man could not save themselves from the flood. The only way was for man to follow the plan of God, and thereby God could save man from the flood. So it is now through the Lord Jesus Christ, His long-suffering is that perhaps we would respond to the drawing of His Spirit. And as we read in 1 Peter, He could bring us unto Himself, and thereby salvation, the long-suffering of God, is salvation. See, the enemy would try to use this idea that the Lord's suffering long with us, that we just keep messing up and we're a failure and condemn us. That's not how it works. The Lord suffers long with us so that He can bring us to Him. And He is our salvation. He is our salvation. We're not. Not us getting it right. Acknowledging He paid the price because I can't. And so I accept this operation of his spirit. I accept this exchange, his righteousness for my unrighteousness, his justness for my unjustness. Aren't you thankful for that today? Fitting on Memorial Day that he would lay down his life for us. Amen. Could we thank the Lord together today? Thank you for your long suffering. It is salvation to us. Thank you for your long suffering. It's because of your mercies, Lord, that we are not consumed. I thank you today. I worship you this morning. I give you glory. I give you honor. I give you thanks. I give you praise. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I am marked by the fact I find myself thinking of Galatians 6 you don't need to go there brother, but where it lists the fruits of the spirit you already know where I'm going the nine fruits of the spirit those are fruits that are produced by the spirit of God working and operating in our lives isn't any wonder one of those fruits is long suffering Lord's had to work with me on that. He's still working with me on that. The long suffering of the Lord. Amen. I want the fruit of His Spirit in my life. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. Greet someone. Thank you for being here, worshiping, and in the house of the Lord today. God bless you.